The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2014, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This recording was from Friday, May 9th. Private Tasting Salon, Dessert from the Barrel, featuring Wayne Wandles from Cigar City Brewing and Brian Nelson from Hardywood Brewing. Good evening, everybody. You may need to, uh, as we have some folks that, that may come in and uh, be looking for seats, we may have to cozy up a little bit. This is a personal affair in here. Um, this is the dessert from a barrel salon. So if you are looking for the barrel aging, that's over here. The uh, yeast taste off is downstairs somewhere. So if you're looking for one of those, you may be in the wrong well, not the wrong room, because this is going to be a great room tonight, but you may not be in the room that you intended to be. Um, as I said, this, is, uh, this salon is dessert from a barrel. My name's Steve Broad. I'm the brewmaster for Free State Brewing Company in Lawrence, Kansas, um, and I'll be your host and introducer for this evening's salon. Savor is now in its seventh year and well-established as one of America's premier beer and food events, and it's brought to you by the Brewers Association, the national nonprofit trade association representing small and independent craft brewers. I serve on the board of directors for the Brewers Association and also chair the events committee, which assists in the production of Savor and the Great American Beer Festival coming up soon in Denver in early October, another of America's premier craft beer events. The BA also publishes craftbeer.com, which is your best source of information about these events and about the wider world of American craft beer. Uh, I want to thank Spiegelau, the class of glass, for uh, providing the glassware for this evening's salon. Uh, great glass mare makes a great difference in the enjoyment of your beer. Um, you have one beer in front of you already. I'll ask that you, enjoy, you, you sort of wait until each beer is introduced and brought out to you to enjoy it this evening. If you miss something that one of our speakers says tonight, all of the Saver Salons are recorded for podcast listening by craftbeerradio.com, giving you the opportunity to hear it all again. And uh, as we have questions this evening, um, we'll try and make sure to get your questions answered on there as well. Beer has once more become recognized as having a seat at the in the dining room, whether a quick refreshing pills with an impromptu picnic on a hot summer's day, or a more substantial and complex multi-course meal at home or in a fine restaurant. One of the most interesting parts of the meal to pair can be dessert where opportunities abound for unique and intriguing combinations. Add the complexities of barrel-aged beers, and you can find that the beer alone can suffice for the entire course. Our speakers tonight will introduce their approaches to barrel aging and to the gastronomic intricacies of liquid dessert. Please join me in welcoming Wayne Wombles from Cigar City Brewing in Tampa, Florida, and Brian Nelson from Hardywood Park Craft Brewery in Richmond, Virginia. Well, I guess we can start it off. Um, I'm the head brewer at Hardywood Park uh, Craft Brewery, and uh, thank you guys for coming out uh, and, and you know seeing what we have, uh, you know our sort of interpretation of dessert in a barrel. Um, this is sort of Wayne's concept coming through to, to create the salon, and I'm just you know happy to be here to to share what we have. <clears throat> I'm head brewer for Cigar City Brewing. 
Uh, actually, in the beginning, we, uh, we didn't even have a spot here. <laughs> so we're actually planning on putting this together in conjunction with um, Hardywood because we're brewing a collaboration with them this year. Um, so uh, sort of pitched this before we even had a table on the floor tonight, and I'm really glad that, uh, that they picked our proposal and allowed us to serve you our beer and talk about it. So what we're going to kind of cover is sort of the topics we're going to be, uh, you know, going through what our barrel age program does, uh, both Wayne and I, and, and, and how we sort of came about. The, uh, the beer actually you're drinking right now is a, uh, what we call our Hardywood Bourbon Crew. Uh, it's a Belgian quad that we age on rum barrels, or I'm sorry, uh, uh, bourbon barrels. And uh, on this particular batch, uh, we did add some uh, dried apricots to it. So it gives that little bit of apricot uh, sort of finish to it and also in the aroma. Um, but the, uh, this was our first at least the, the, the barrel-aged crew was our first barrel-aged attempt. Um, we typically, are uh, in the initial stages uh, of our brewery, we're only two and a half years old right now, started with using locally sourced bourbon barrels out of uh, uh, Fredericksburg, it's the Bowman Distillery. It's now grown, so we have to source them from other, other areas now. But uh, this was sort of first our, our first attempt at a barrel-aged uh, beer. Um, it's, you know, had some pretty good success so far, and uh, it, it's... A big beer going in and an even bigger beer coming out. So it gets all of those bourbon flavors uh, that accompany the sweetness of the quad. Um, it does finish, the quad itself does finish you know, fairly dry, but it has that little hinge of sweetness uh, to it that sort of accompanies and makes it that dessert quality uh, type of beer. Um, and it pairs with desserts very well, I think. Uh, we have uh, this year's release on the, on the barrel-aged uh, bourbon crew. Uh, I think we did... Uh, somewhere around 105 uh, bourbon barrels this year, which was uh, sort of a uh, uh, a landmark for us, and it, it's fun to fun to sort of find that growing and growing and growing in the future. Yeah. I know our, our our typical uh, the way we look at our barrel age program is find out something that works in the barrel. We do a five gallon um, test batch, typically with a, a local distillery called Reservoir. Uh, that will sort of put it in there. It takes a little shorter maturation on, on, on the, the five-gallon or ten-gallon barrels that we have. Then we can figure out where we need to go from there to tweak the recipe if needed uh, to, to, to scale it up to the production scale that we did. So. Also, um, feel free at any point to ask questions. We would rather tell you what you want to know instead of just giving you information. So if you have a question at any point, please raise your hand and we'll do our best to, to answer it. Um, so we've been barrel-aging beer since 2009, uh, smaller volumes moving up to larger volumes. Our barrel program is still under, um, under like, well, right around 100 wooden barrels. Uh, at one time, we just don't have the capacity. So when we, when, we try to, when we create stuff, we try to make sure that it's quality. And uh, there's a lot that goes into barrel-aging for us. And, um, of course, we've had our failures. We've fallen on our face, and we've had to sort of eat it. Um, and we try not to make those same mistakes anymore. Uh, so barrel aging is very risky, um, and a big part of it uh, for us that's sort of turned our program around has been our lab. Um, our lab has played a, a very big role in our beers, and now our barrel aged beers, and now we actually put a lot of focus into plating every barrel, and uh, before it goes into the blend, if it grows on the plate, it doesn't go into the blend. Um, and even prior to putting a barrel into the blend, 
sensory analysis before it's bulldogged into the, the blend tank. Um, so a lot of things go into this, and there, there are a lot of um, variables in this, and uh, we, we pay a lot of attention to that. Uh, one of the ways that we do that is when we receive barrels, there are a couple different things that could go wrong. Uh, the first thing that we see that could go wrong is the staves being dry and shrunken, and now we're just putting beer through a sieve pretty much, just going all down the drain, and uh, that's something we've definitely tried to avoid. Uh, another thing that we've noticed is um, even though there have been these high alcohol spirits in these barrels, there's still a possibility for certain types of lactobacillus, the souring bacteria, and Britannomyces to exist. Um, just because it's had a spirit in it doesn't make it go away. And those are things that we've dealt with as well. Uh, some, of, some of the ways that we've tried to combat this has been to use an ozone generator. Um, so actually we'll come around, we'll have like all our barrels lined up, we're going to fill for the day, set on the racks. We'll fill each barrel with ozone gas and come all the way back to the beginning and purge with CO2 and fill with a bulldog. Purge with CO2, fill with a bulldog. That's yielded some pretty good results. Uh, another thing that we do with, um, with shrunken staves, uh, we've actually uh, used a, a, dry, a portable dry steam generator and gone and actually hit the barrels with that. The idea is to try to swell the staves with minimal impact to dilution of the liquor that's been in the barrel. Um, so those are some of the ways that we approach uh, our barrel-aged product and try to safeguard it, make it more stable and package. Uh, some of the beers that we brought today uh, are multi-barrel, one of them is, and um, we have several different specific focuses on how we go about creating barrel-aged beers. Um, I think one of the big things or keys to barrel-aged beers is being able to have a decent amount of mouthfeel as, as well as residual sweetness without being excessively cloying. Um, so these are all things that we strive to do when we produce barrel-aged beers. In the midst of that, when you consider that and consider any sort of residual sugar, you're feeding something that if it's there, it's going to have a field day in your bottle and, and your consumers are, gonna, are not going to like you at the end of the day. So those are the things that we try to avoid through our new lab program. Yeah, but, uh, Wayne brings up a good point of uh, every barrel is different. You know, anytime you get one in, <clears throat> it's going to be different. It may be falling apart. You may have to rehydrate. You may have to get it so that it's actually going to hold liquids. Um, before that, and also the testing as well. It, you probably have more extensive uh, experience in that. We're trying to get to that point uh, where we do have a dedicated uh, uh, lab person actually looking at that. And uh, it, it's, it's something where you think, yeah, you, what you, you don't know what's in the barrel until you actually have beer in it and pull it out and figure out what it is. Um, and we test, we, we test, at least from a sensory standpoint, every barrel before it gets blended. We do do a lot of blends uh, you know, from our bourbon crew and from our bourbon GBS, which you'll, you'll taste later today. Uh, we do blend them together in order to make a consistent uh, 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 batch in the end. So if we have more than one tank full, uh, please, uh, we'll actually you know, blend those together and make sure the consistency is there. Um, so the next beer I think that's being served is our uh, 110K from last year. Um, just briefly... I don't know how many people know the, the background of the name for the beer. Um, 110K came from this guy named, it goes by a call named Cobra on Rape Beer. Um, he posted, he posted, uh, like, he posted a thread on Rape Beer and basically was saying, basically he's just a general, um, uh, just likes to start trouble. Um, so he posts this thread and he says, 
how much do you make a year? And all these people start responding. So by the time you know, like multiple people respond, he actually says, well, I make 110K plus overtime. And it became a, like a new, like, gave new like, definition to a whole lot plus a little bit more. Um, so we make this series every year. And uh, this particular beer is uh, it's an, it's an imperial stout aged in Portuguese Portofino barrels with raspberries. So the idea is to encapsulate, um, I mean, even just having raspberries and port wine after dinner, that's good enough. That's a good enough dessert. So we've sort of encapsulated it inside of uh, a, a rich beer, and, and that's basically what you're tasting. Um, it's, it's aged quite a bit, and I think it's, uh, I think it's come along quite nicely. Um, to be able to put the port and raspberry character and get like a nice balance with that and still have the chocolate support and have the body and the residual sweetness, um, that was just a big plus. Uh, so hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, the sort of key to, as Wayne sort of mentioned, is having that mouthfeel, that a little bit of sweetness but not too overpowering. You know, powering. Uh, a lot of complex flavors come from barrels. I mean, you have the, the bourbon character or whatever, uh, apple brandy barrel or the port barrels, wine barrels coming from it. But uh, you also have... Uh, a lot of the wood aspects coming out of it. And as you age for a longer period of time, uh, that barrel is going to change. And sometimes you have a peak, sometimes you have it where it's nice and sweet spot. We've found, uh, from a timeline standpoint, somewhere around eight to 10 weeks is uh, for some of our barrels, sometimes it's six weeks. You just have to have a nice or be in tune with what's going on in the barrel at each time. Um, I don't know if you can explain yeah, that's that a, as well. Actually, that's a really good point. Um, and brings up a whole other thing we can discuss, I think. Uh, so Florida is very different than Richmond, Virginia, as far as temperature and humidity. Um, so one of the things that we deal with uh, and have sort of come to embrace is there are, we, we see like there are two different factors that impact our barrel-aged beer, and it's very seasonal, or one element of it is very seasonal, the other one not quite so much. Um, just like with, uh, with, with like concrete, uh, wood is also impacted by temperature. So, um, you know, like if, if you have hot temperature, it causes wood to expand. If you have a cold temperature, it causes the wood to contract. We also have another thing on our side that plays very well with what we do. We have very high humidity levels. And that also, uh, you know, like in, increases the possibility of stave expansion. So we look at it in a couple different ways. Um, now, if you're running a, a sour program, maybe you're going to be a little bit more upset about it because you're going to be like, oh, I don't want acetone. I don't want these things getting into my beer, acetobacter, et cetera. Um, we, we, had, we, uh, we haven't really seen that issue um, because a lot of what we're doing is actually um, neutral product barrel-aged-wise. So what we're actually seeing is with the increased heat and with the increased humidity, um, what's in the stave ends up getting uh, forced out through the process of expansion. So in some situations, we can turn a barrel-aged beer in as little as three months. During the winter, it's a little bit different because we do have some stave contraction. Um, with the humidity levels, we're fortunate, though. We, we rarely have any leakage due to stave um, uh, compression. Uh, so that, that's kind of cool, too. But... Um, 
the, the really cool thing is that, you know, like, we can accelerate barrel aging just through uh, embracing our local temperature and humidity levels. You want to talk anything? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've, uh, when we started at our barrel-aged uh, program with the Bourbon Crew 2012, um, you know, it was in, this is sort of a learning experience for us. We were in the warehouse where, you know, some in summertime, it gets really hot in a brewery, really humid, pull up the, pull up the doors and, and let some breeze in. But what that did to that barrel was change the temperature in, in where its environment is. So uh, did it help it? Did it hurt it? What we found this year is we had uh, some much better control over the temperature because we had a, a new place to actually put it where it was around you know, a, a constant temperature at all times. And I really think that helped the quality of the beer um, in the end and, and how it was aged. Aged about the same amount of time, again, tasting it along the way just to see where it's at. But he's, yeah, Wayne's definitely right. You have, that, you have those humid uh, areas and you have your heat that's actually you know, making the beer flow within that barrel and the staves are giving and taking uh, some of that beer and, and contributing to it, whether it be good or bad. Um, that's something, you know, that's our job to figure it out in the end. Well, let's talk about another element while we're talking about uh, this particular subject. Um, one of the things we've done uh, a little bit of, or actually more of recently, we developed a, uh, an infusion tank. Um, the infusion tank it's sort of like a hybrid between Trogue's Hop Gun and, um, and between uh, Sierra Nevada's Torpedo. Uh, so the idea is um, uh, wood aging versus barrel aging. Well, what's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. And, and the biggest difference um, is the fact that when you're wood aging beer, uh, you're, you're going to be less susceptible to have that oxidation that you would have in a barrel. Um, so that's why you'll see some of our products like our IPAs being wood aged instead of barrel aged. Uh, barrel aged definitely has its, its place. Um, oxidation is a beautiful thing with bigger beers and that's why we generally shoot for above like 10% alcohol by volume with any sort of barrel aged beer we produce. Yeah, yeah that's true. We've, we've had some, um, I think some uh, people ask, you know, what, what, are, what are the ABVs of our beers in the barrels and what does it pick up from it and uh, well, you know, why are our barrel aged beers so extremely big and that does hold up better in the barrel when you have a 10.2 percent beer going in it usually picks up a point maybe a two depending on how fresh the barrel is and how fresh it's dumped um, which is difficult to deal with too with all of the approvals and things like that but uh, uh, yeah it's, uh, it's it's interesting from the we try to reduce as much oxygen pickup as we're putting the beer in and also taking it out to blend in the tank um, as Wayne mentioned, with his, uh, we don't quite go as far as the ozone uh, sanitation route, uh, but as far as like CO2, just making sure that barrel is purged before we actually put any beer in it. Make sure it's filled from the bottom going up as gently as possible, and then as we're taking it out, also topping it up with CO2, so when you get to that bottom of the barrel, it's pulling it out, and then there's no oxygen being in there. Uh, these are all the sort of things we try to keep under control, um, you know, for oxygen pickup. And we also do a wood-aged um, IPA called Hoppler that, yeah, this, this just staves or wood pieces in the tank to sort of control that oxygen level as well uh, on that. So the barrel. Yes. Uh, yeah, so the, the question was, uh, how did we decide to get into barrel aging? What was the sort of impetus to get us into that? Um, 
I, for us, I can speak to, we, we did trials. Uh, we did, uh, you know, five to 20, you know, 20 gallon batches of trial beers on those local reservoir barrels I was mentioning. And what made a good uh, beer? We were actually didn't have a plan to do a barrel series. Uh, well, we have our barrel series. We do five different uh, barrel-aged beers per year. Uh, didn't have any intention of doing that in the first place. But through that practice, through that uh, sort of creative creativity that you know, our brewers have, um, we just wanted to get into that area and, and sort of scale it up. Once you have a good product, you're like, well, hey. Maybe maybe other people might like it, you know. <laughs> so that, that that was sort of our decision to get into it. It just sort of has expanded and expanded. Yeah, um, Joey Redner, the CEO of Cigar City Brewing, said, "Hey, let's put this stuff in a barrel in 2009." And I was like, "What the hell are you talking about?" <laughs> I was like, "Man, this this stuff's going to get infected. This is going to be a really bad idea." And we did it anyway. And then once I kind of saw what it contributed to the beer, we ended up, uh, or I ended up understanding what it was, and I just grew with it, like grew it inside of our culture. And, and we made a, like I said, we made a bunch of mistakes, but there are so many variables with this type of product and to get anything into a bottle out of a barrel and have it be stable in package is an achievement, especially without flash pasteurization. So. Yeah, that, that's one of the, yes, good. Uh, well, it's um, in general. I think uh, the barrel market is becoming more difficult to secure, just because of changes uh, in at least distilling, uh, where those barrels are coming, going from, from the distilleries themselves. Um, a lot of them are going over to Scotland. A lot of them are going to different places, and not necessarily having a uh, uh, ready and available for for brewers. And the the demand for brewers to get them, I think, has increased as well over the last like two years. Yeah. So it's um, for from a uh, I can speak from experience from the Bowman side of things, which is where we started our barrel program. Um, we were able to get 60, uh, and they were like, "Hey, they were they were happy. They're giving us barrels. It was great. Uh, they were happy to get rid of them because they were they were done with them." And um, now there's a at least a I think a six month waiting list. Even even us, or a six month waiting list to do that. So we have to source them from other other locations. Yeah. Yes. Um, I think I think Stranahan's was the first one to make that move um, out of Denver. Stranahan's out of Denver. They were the first people to say, "No, you can't do this." Um, apparently, well, you, yeah, you can't say this beer was aged in Stranahan barrels. Uh, they were one of the first distilleries to do that, um, and I. I, I I completely understand. I mean, what happens? You put your beer in the barrel. You're not, la- you know, like plating in the lab, and then you release it. It's infected, and there's Stranahan's name on the front of your bottle. That's. I would understand. I mean, I totally understand. I'm, they were just trying to protect their business. That's all. Yeah. But- we did. Uh, we did an imperial milk porter uh, about two or three years ago in Stranahan's. Um, and it turned out great. So we weren't the ones that created the issue. I guess someone else. So I have two questions. Actually, it's brought up by previous So in Tampa, you were talking about oxygen testing in the barrel. How about the salt there? And 
Yeah. He wants that in full detail. So, um, with you were talking about oxygen passing through the barrels, and with you being in Tampa, how about the salt air passing through the barrels, or does salt have any effect on it? We're not close enough to uh, to the ocean um, to to really have that that briny thing. Okay. However, I'd, I'd love to have a, have a warehouse so we could just open the doors and sort of just explore it. I mean, what about uh, Imperial Margarita Ghosts? We already did a Margarita Ghost this year, and then Agent Tequila barrels. Wouldn't that be cool? Just have like a little bit of like the Florida actual natural environment uh, impact those barrels, um, but it's not something that we we generally worry about. Uh, the second question was, you mentioned Stranahan's being the first ones to say you don't, they don't want you to put their name on the barrel. Could that be a competitive issue with their relationship with Flying Dog? A competitive issue with Stranahan's whiskey and Flying Dog are related through. Demo. I'm not sure. You know. Um, if someone says no, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna second, you know, like second guess them. I'd rather just not deal with the legalese and cease and desist. I don't want to. You know, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm done. Yeah, I, I respect, agreed on that. I respect agreed. it as long as I can get your barrels and put my beer in it, and I won't. I won't tell people what it is. As long as it's good, I'll sell it. Yeah, we ha- we haven't run into much issue with. Um with any uh, of the pushback from any of the distilleries that we use. We've, uh, we've used a variety of them, uh, Four Roses, Maker's Mark, um, Claremont Springs, you know, a couple different ones that, uh, that we've done, Jim Beam, uh, Wild Turkey, and all of these, uh, uh, we, yeah, we haven't had any issue, and I hope, there, I hope there isn't in the future. Yeah, if we can uh, start pouring the other one, that'd be great. Um, the, we're going to uh, break 2014 out. Imperial? Yep. All right. This is an, an imperial milk stout that we did uh, age. This is, again, this is one of our, our, our test uh, batches. So you guys, this is a privilege for you guys to have. This is one of our five-gallon batches we did in the reservoir barrels. This is one of our test uh, deals we're doing. Um, and then uh, aged on coconut. So this is one of the bigger, I'd say probably the biggest beer uh, we've, we've made so far at Hardywood. We're only a 15, or sorry, 20-barrel system. Uh, we've got a bunch of fermenters, however, you know, in our barrel program's increasing, but our mash ton can't hold uh, or can't handle but so much malt. Uh, th- this is a uh, extremely big beer. Um, that's why you have to do three or four mashes to make one right. kettle full. That's right. We, we actually scaled this, this batch down to 15 gallons, or sorry, 15 barrel batch on the 20 barrel system. And um, yeah, it got just the first runnings off of it. That's all you take. Brian, just because we, uh, we all tend to get into a little bit of inside baseball as brewers when we start talking about things, can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on the, you know, just taking the first runnings to go into this? The first runnings? Yeah. So, uh, when, yeah, when we're, when we're brewing big beers such as this, uh, you can only gather so much sweetness from, you know, a designed uh, mash ton, which we have sort of a mash ton and, and louder ton base. It's all the same. I think Wayne has a four-vessel system. We have a, yeah, four-vessel. Four vessel. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we have a three-vessel system, so the third vessel is a whirlpool. We have a mash ton, louder, uh, kettle, and then whirlpool. So our mash ton is sort of built for, 
you know, maybe 14 Play-Doh beer to run efficiently. Uh, this is somewhere around uh, 32 Play-Doh. So we're looking at extremely high gravity we're trying to get out of this beer. Um, what, what we do to sort of combat that is uh, just gain, gather the first runnings out of it. So it's that first sweet uh, wort that comes out, sweet liquor that comes out and goes into the kettle. And so each time we did this beer, or when we did this beer, which we actually did a, uh, a trial basis on it uh, for a, a production level scale, we only ran, uh, we designed it, or I designed it for 15 barrels on a 20 barrel brew house gathered the first 10 barrels only and that seemed to be the i think we lucked out <laughs> for those of you that know if you're going to make a beer like this set your brew house efficiency at about 60 to 65 percent right. you're probably going to be pretty good that's right then you want to run off to about 15 and then if you do it like we did it in the old days you dump 15 play-doh wort straight down the drain then you mash it again and do the same thing over again um nowadays with like four vessel uh what we'll do is we'll run off to 15 into the kettle hopefully we Start as high as 24 plus, and then we will um, we'll take the final runnings down to about seven or eight and run them off into the whirlpool. Then we'll use those runnings to put back into the mash mixer to mash in the next batch instead of water, um, as much as we can we can uh, gather. Then we use maybe if there's a little bit left to float the screens and the sparge water, um, and over and over and over again to try to make an all-malt, high-gravity product. Yeah, so when, when we're talking about, you know, this is sort of getting in the way on the technical side, uh, the amount of malt that's going into uh, these big beers, especially this one, in, is, it's almost 2,500 pounds of malt. Um, and that's a lot for the false bottom to handle. It, it flexes, it bows a little bit. It's sort of, uh, we have a lot of oats in this as well, so it's sort of, inhibits all that, you know, quick runoff that we're trying to collect and all the sweetness. It's actually a great idea to, to, to mix back into that uh, uh, mash water to it's do that. It's a little bit more efficient. Yeah, a, l- but a little bit nothing, more efficient. There's nothing efficient about high-gravity brewing all malt. Nothing efficient about it. But uh, you, when we do these, you know, getting back to the barrel side of things, these beers, these big beers that uh, age well uh, and also are conducive to nice barrel aging qualities. I mean, they, they sort of blend well with the bourbon aging or the uh, apple brandy, which is, uh, we got a hold of some of those uh, recently that we put the production size into this, and we're going to have that set for a while. So that, that'll be a fun one when it comes out. So let's talk about the uh, collaboration just a little bit. Sure. Um, yeah, this, is, uh, this is, I think, a pilot this, this, this is a, yeah, this is a pilot batch of what uh, Cigar City and Hardywood Park are going to collaborate upon. Um, you want to talk about the concepts that you guys, they just sold us all day. <laughs> I mean, we just couldn't say no. Um, just because uh, they pitched us even the artwork for the concept, and it was just impossible for us to say no. So yeah. go ahead and talk about yeah, it. Yeah, we, we sort of had this idea... Um, just because, you know, Cigar City has such clout right now in the market, we wanted to collaborate with somebody great. So we did come up with a, a, a pretty substantial uh, sort of pitch for them to try to, to try to do a collaboration with them. It's, it's one of those breweries that you want to do a collaboration from. We're, we're very young. These guys have been around uh, for a while now. And it, <laughs> but, but, but the amount of, of hype you guys get is, is serious. And the, and the stouts as well, that was sort of something that drew us to, um, you know, trying to get this collaboration going. Uh, you know, the, the milk stouts, the imperial milk stouts that we're trying to create, and which is the collaboration sort of based upon, uh, we're, we are going to do a, uh, you know, imperial milk stout, which is what the sort of base of this is. Um, 
and Agent on Coca Nibs, and and we're gonna call that the Milkman. And what the uh, what Wayne and, and Cigar City is gonna do, which is a very cool concept, they're gonna do a white uh, milk stout. Yeah, we're putting our head in the guillotine and hoping that the blade doesn't fall. <laughs> right, right. Which, which was a challenge when, when we sort of came up with, this, with what we were going to try to do and sort of bouncing ideas back and forth. Um, it was fun to see that you guys had been working on that uh, chocolate milk stout, basically a white stout. White, yeah, white, a white milk stout, yeah, which is absolutely insane. Um, so I guess one of the ways that we approached it, I'll talk about it, um, is... Uh, well, how can you get those flavors into a beer without really impacting the flavor? And to me, I just thought it was so trivial and absolutely stupid. Um, because it, to me, it was just, it, this is just a gimmick. Um, but then I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, raw materials and such, this is actually pretty challenging. So how would you do something like this and actually end up with something that was, was drinkable and, and like actually quite nice? And the way we've actually approached it or we're going to approach it is by using um, heavy roast cacao nibs. So we're going to be able to get those flavors because they don't add the colors that coffee beans do to beer. So that's the way we're going to try to make our white milk stout uh, as the opposite side of the chocolate milk stout that Hardywood's making. So it, it's going to be fun. We're looking at um, somewhere in September, I think, was the last thing we came up upon. I don't our know. Our statement it's, uh, of process is approved. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So it may, be, it may move a little quicker than that. But uh, it, it's going to be fun. The, the, the concept itself is to be... You know, when, when we um, sell this to the customer, that will have these side by side and have it sort of blended together. They're not necessarily tied together by anything other than, you know, we're trying to come up with these delicious beers that are, you know, dessert beers that are chocolate-based and also milk-based. So it's like a, a chocolate milk stout and then a, a white milk stout. So ours has, like, the milkmaid, and theirs has, like, the, the delivery guy, and it's all, like... What, like 50s or 60s artwork? Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really it's very cool, cool stuff. It's very cool. I think somehow we ran into, you guys found an artist that um, it was like, what was it, did like Coca-Cola, old Coca-Cola commercials artistry, and he said, well, go talk to this guy, and he does very similar work, so yep. it looked really cool. No, it, it, it's, it's a great concept. It's, uh, you know, it's something out of the box for us. Uh, which is fun too. Uh, a lot of our, you know, branding and labeling is sort of uh, classic, and uh, you know, we try to keep it in, in a certain vein. But uh, this is sort of getting uh, getting us outside of the box, and work with Scar City is just fantastic. Kudos. <laughs> yes. Are you talking about barrel-aged products, or are you talking about core brands? Well, I mean, I guess it's kind of barrel-aged products. Like where there, as far as barrel-aged product, pro, uh, products, yeah. there is no market. If you're making a barrel-aged product that should be specifically, in my opinion, made to your, your ideas, your concepts, your, your subjective sense of taste and aroma, everything should be based upon what you're doing. Um, and we released some pretty interesting stuff last year that people were like, I'm, I can't wait to trade this bottle that you made and sold me, you know, like, but there's, that's, if, what, what do I do? Do I stop doing it? I mean, that's what I love to do. And if I stop doing what I love doing, I had some guy in Copenhagen last week say, 
why would you make a beer like this? And I said, well, why do anything at all? I mean, so it's, barrel-aged beer is like that for me. You know, it's, it's, it's whatever you think is going to be good. It doesn't always pan out. doesn't pan out. Dump it. Or find a way to blend it, but don't blend it because you're just trying to save it. Um, I always see, well, I'll give you one idea or one, uh, one example. We did a beer last year called uh, Don Gavino. It was, uh, it was two different 12% alcohol by volume saisons that were aged in two different um, series of Chardonnay barrels from different vintners. The, the beer was uh, excessively dry. Um, we used 3711 uh, French Saison yeast. Um, it's damn near Brett. Um, and, uh, and it just ripped it down to shreds and nothing. In addition to that, the barrel and the Chardonnay character was the only thing that was left outside of alcohol. So I basically spent the next two weeks in the lab with a graduated cylinder doing blends to try to determine the 15-barrel batch that I was going to make that I was not going to put into any package I just made a 15-barrel batch of beer just to blend with those two series of barrels to make Don Gavino. And those are the cool, successful, fun things that come out of projects like that. But in my opinion, there shouldn't be a market for barrel-aged beer uh, as like a preconceived notion. This one, yes, good. Well, uh, we, we do uh, a, a couple different things as, at least myself, do some barrel blends that we... Uh, for some long lead aged beers. For if we have some that are aged for a year, by themselves they're not going to be great. You taste them, they're, they're, they're overpowering. You know, you have to blend it with either new beer, fresh beer, or, uh, or a different barrel uh, to, to sort of complement what, what's going on there. And that, that's, that, that, is, that is the fun part. It, like Wayne's saying, he's taking graduated cylinders and pouring it in, you know, and mixing it, and then you figure out, okay, we need a certain percentage of this barrel, uh, that barrel, and this, and make a blend. And we do it at, we do it 20 barrels or you know, maybe 15 barrels at a time, beer barrels, and, um, and then release it. And that's something that never touches a bottle for us. It's always just on draft and something fun that we, uh, that we do. Um, hopefully soon it'll, you know, maybe, maybe get in a bottle and go out to the market. But uh, it, that, that is, uh, uh, to Wayne's point, the, you know, some of the fun of it and figuring out if there's a barrel that tastes bad, yeah, you dump it. You don't worry about it. it it's something that you, know, you, you just don't want to, uh, to bring out because it's not contributing positively to, to the beer. But if, it encapsulate, if, it, if it's like retaining something or encapsulating something that could be used in some way... Make the best out of it. Okay. Um, so you might have addressed this a little bit, but um, what was your absolute favorite one that you guys made and it came out really well? And what was the one that you had such high hopes for, aside from the Chardonnay one, that you found out just flopped, I guess, or least favorite, but one that you really were pumped for and maybe didn't work out? Um, and whose opinion? <laughs> what? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. My... My favorite two beers that we did last year, uh, as far as barrel age goes, is the collaboration we did with John Harris, formerly a Full Sail, and now with Ecliptic. He has his own company in Portland, Oregon. Um, we did a beer called Illuminating the Path with him, and it was, it's, it's, this, it's this, people always ask me, what's the base beer? And I'm like, it, there is no base beer. It doesn't exist because when we designed the beer, it was based around everything else except for the grist and the hot bill. That had nothing to do with designing the beer at all. 
the whole the whole premise of designing the beer in the first place was we're going to age this beer in Oregon Pinot Noir barrels. We're going to use Marion berries. We're going to use uh, rose hips. We're going to use hibiscus. We're going to use acai berries. We're going to use Saskatoon berries. And it's you know like the whole concept for us. Um, the, and one of the reasons we call it illuminating the path is I don't think we knew what the hell we were doing in the first place. And then we finally sort of got to the end of the tunnel and realized this is going to be really cool because our concept is sort of um, creating a beer that emulates red wine but still maintains its identity as a beer. Um, so that's, that's one of my favorites from last year. The other one was Don Gavino because in the end, Don Gavino ended up being the same thing but in the white wine ver- world versus the red wine world. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's hard to say for us as far as, uh, or for me at least, for um, you know, the barrel age and, and what's my favorite. I have done a couple barrel blends that have been uh, you know, one-offs that have been awesome. Um, the, the, uh, the one we're drinking now, Gingerbread Stout, was actually, uh, ever, if everyone hasn't familiar, this Gingerbread Stout is one of our bigger selling beers. Um, we have a decent release for it. And we also put it in, the, in, in bourbon barrels. And this is a bourbon barrel-aged version of last year. Um, th- this one was a little bit... Uh, it turned out fantastic, I thought. This is one of my favorite uh, you know, barrel-aged beers that we've done. However, we also lost a bunch of it uh, in, in a story of... Uh, a little bit of uh, uh, you know, user error... Um, but we ended, we ended up losing uh, around, we did, I think, 60 barrels, or sorry, 70 barrels, 80 barrels of this, 75 barrels of it in total after getting some loss from uh, bourbon barrels and, and putting it back in into the tank to blend. Um, unfortunately, one of the uh, tri-clamps uh, on the tank did not uh, get tightened down far enough and blew off, and I think it was uh, myself and Patrick who was sitting over there laughing, uh, got an extreme beer shower uh, from that, <laughs> trying, trying to preserve as much as we could. Uh, and uh, Fortunately, we had, to, we had some bright tank space issues, so logistically it was going in a fermenter for uh, bright conditioning, and uh, we were able to save what was in the cone. <laughs> Otherwise, we would have lost a bunch of it. So we ended up salvaging around 18 barrels in total. So this is what you're drinking right now, which is the... Uh, a very limited release in 2014 or 2013, but it, this is one of my favorites. I think it's got a lot of complexity to it. Um, I think from the barrels we used uh, were uh, four roses again, which has been a, a favorite of mine. Um, and it just turned out. You, I mean, at the beginning, you know, I was getting a lot of coconut uh, out of it. Now it's sort of maturing a little bit. It's been, you know, a, a few months now. So it, in the bottle itself, it's conditioning and it's, it's, it's becoming a different beast in the end. And a lot of that, a lot of the spices that were used for the gingerbread spout. Yes. Uh, the, the, the question was about the local sourcing for the ginger and the honey and, and all the sp- uh, things we do. So our reserve series uh, uses uh, a local ingredient, and our gingerbread stout, uh, which is the base of this beer, which goes in the bourbon barrels, uses um, wildflower honey from, uh, um, I'm going to forget the name of it now, uh, Bear Farms, which is in Richmond, Virginia. They, he produces local honey, and also from Castlemont Farms, uh, local baby ginger, Hawaiian baby ginger, which nobody's doing uh, anywhere other than Hawaii, and they're growing it in Virginia, which is the very, the very cool part, and it gives us this nice little snap 
um, and nice little fresh snap uh, when it's really, really fresh. The barrel age, you probably can't pick up much of the ginger anymore. It sort of tapers down over, over time and changes and evolves, but you get more of that honey out, a little bit more of the cinnamon um, after being in the barrel for this long. You had a question, yes. Uh, I was just wondering if you always use bar bourbon barrels or do you sometimes use rum or have you thought about using other different alcohols for the barrels? Or that, That's a good question. So, yeah, it was, uh, do we do different barrels? Um, we have. Uh, m most of the majority of what we do is bourbon. Um, we're starting to delve into uh, apple brandy. We've done, we, one of our bigger releases is a uh, farmhouse pumpkin, which is a Saison base, which is in rum barrels. Uh, which is very nice. It uses some spicing as well. Um, we did a, our second year anniversary beer was a, uh, we did a Belgian triple in tequila barrels, which turned out, fan, I, it, it's, it's up for debate actually. I think it's going to age well in the bottle and is going to age over time. Up front, it was a bit, it was a bit tough to, uh, to figure out what that beer was and people either dug it uh, or just was like, what, what is this? You know, it's, it, you get that tequila, you get that little, uh, it, it almost had a sea salt type of uh, aroma to it. Um, you definitely got the tequila out of it, and, but it was a Belgian triple on the finish. So it was really nice. I think it's going to age well. I, I have a bottle in my uh, cellar that I'm hoping to, to open up this anniversary in October and figure out what it's doing. We use a lot of different barrels. Um, what, actually, another one of my favorite projects we did, speaking of tequila barrels, was a beer called uh, El Murcielago that we made um, several years ago. And it uh, basically translates to the bat. Um, and the bat is actually the animal that's responsible for pollinating um, the agave. So we felt like we'd just, just play on that. Um, and it's a 10% it's a uh, honey double cream ale aged in tequila barrels and infused with uh, lime peel and uh, cumin. Um, ended up uh, being quite nice. Uh, fresh people had issues with the cumin because it's very loud, but um, as it's aged, it's it's become quite nice. We were just chatting and, and you know going through just before we started this whole uh, salon about what barrels we have on hand right now and what we would like to see and the port barrels, wine barrels. We're starting to get into that and sort of acquire some of those things to to age different types of beers. I not only just like you know dessert beers or big stouts, just something that we can have. Um, to age different styles of beer on, which is, which is the fun of it too. So you have, you know, the hopes is to have a big warehouse full of a lot of beers uh, in different barrels, selecting the ones that are good, bad, and, and figuring it out from there and then, and then growing it. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's the trajectory that we're on and the, and the, the fun that's, the, you know, looking for these interesting uh, barrels. How much do you play around with woods other than oak? I know We do quite a bit. Um, actually have a pretty good connection to where I can contact this company and I can say, hey, I'm interested in this. Can you send me samples of this? And then we'll do a contact um, with a five-gallon keg and sort of determine if, that, if it's something we can use. Initially, the way that I look at it is uh, I take the wood out of the package and I smell it first. Um, uh, another one of, as far as wood-aged beers, I think one of the most uh, interesting beers we did last year, which has caught a lot of criticism, and I understand why, but um, it's, it's just very unique, was Black Ash. We did uh, this beer with uh, John Roberts from Max Loggers, and um, Black Ash is very phenolic, um, and it, it's, it provides a smoke character that is not like smoked meat, um, and it provides a Szechuan peppercorn 
character and it provides a char character and um, it, it's just incredibly uh, phenolic without being smoke. It's more spice and it it uh, it's just been great. But um, some other great woods that we sort of embraced have been cypress. Um, cypress has been uh, has, has been great. We I brewed a collaboration in Finchhampstead uh, uh, near Walkingham in England this year in February with Siren Brewing. Uh, Ryan, who used to work for Duck Rabbit, um, uh, has been brewing in, in, in Europe for quite a while. So uh, went over there and, and brewed a, a beer called Caribbean Chocolate Cake um, that uh, has uh, Dominican Republic cacao nibs, which have tamarind notes. And um, the base beer is basically a foreign stout. And then the Cypress adds like sponge cake to vanilla wafer-like notes uh, to the beer. So that, I think there's so much potential with woods besides non-traditional oak. We just have to figure out what those woods are and implement them. One, one issue we have with this room is that the next room, when they get done, is going to empty out en masse coming through here. So I think we're going to introduce this last beer so you guys have a chance to hear about it because I know everybody wants to get the details on it. And then we'll transition into any you know, time that's left for questions and uh, get sure. any, any other follow-up. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Okay, so this, yeah, that's good. This is... Okay, so this is um, double barrel um, uh, Hunapu's Imperial Stout. Uh, if you've been following any sort of media, you probably are well aware of uh, the fact that Cigar City sucks. Um, so uh, this 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 beer is uh, this beer is a combination of um, two different barrel aged products. We used uh, Forticana rum barrels, and we also used uh, apple layered brandy barrels. Which is one of the... Go ahead. Oh, sure. This is, um, this is Double Barrel Hunapu's Imperial Stout. Um, so this is a blend of um, Florida Cana rum barrels and, um, and Apple Laird brandy barrels, which is one... Laird's is one of the oldest uh, distilleries in the United States. And... Um, uh, this we released this earlier this year, and it's just uh, so, so. This is this is sort of like a new take on everything. The idea is to create a product that not only is dessert-like, but sort of also blends in this mixed cocktail element because now you're blending more than one liquor, um, multiple barrels. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So most of the time, I, I would say that the majority of what we put into barrels are usually ales. Um, you, usually, we don't we don't do lagers. Um, but another thing too that I I have to say, I'm, I, I guess I'm going to kind of deviate from your question just a little bit, but I feel like I have to, is the barrels 
the, the, the beer that goes in the barrels doesn't always, it might start out in a certain way, but the barrels tell you what you're going to do with your product. It's not always you deciding that this is going to be a great idea. You've got to sort of roll with things sometimes. We've got another uh, tequila barrel aged product uh, project going, um, and uh, the, the barrel has added like this peanut character to the beer. So my next move now, I'm just listening to the barrel at this point, is to uh, add tamarind and to add slight amounts of cayenne to create this Thai Mexican beer. Um, so sometimes you just have to listen to what your barrels are telling you and not really try to rule the show. The question is, can I give you an example of which beers I aged in? Every single barrel is different. Um, and uh, there are so many variables. It could be the fact that there's a stave that's slightly contracted to allow more O2 ingress. It could be the fact that this particular barrel was made from this particular wood, which was mostly from the top part of the tree versus the bottom part of the tree, or from this particular area of the country. I'm telling you, there are so many variables that it's ridiculous. One of the fun things we did uh, last year, which I hope we do again this year, it won't be on the same sort of vein, but we did a what we call our barrel day. Last year, our barrel day was taking uh, seven different bourbon barrels with the same beer introduced to it to figure out what each barrel did to it. So it was different makers. It was Jim Beam, Maker's Mark, uh, Wild Turkey, uh, Seven or Four Roses. Uh, we had a couple of other ones in there that just to see what... Uh, what it did to the to the beer was the same. So we put it in. We knew what the beer base beer was. What's going to come out from it? And you know that you can attribute that to you know some of the distilling. You know what what imparted from the distilling there, but also like Wayne's saying, each barrel. If I get two four roses uh, barrels, both of those beers are going to be different when you taste them when you sample them. That, that, yeah, Wayne could probably speak more to that on me. We try to do the best we can to plate them and isolate them. But in my opinion, the best way to stabilize barrel-aged beer is flash pasteurization, at least. Um, and there are other breweries that are doing this. Uh, I won't mention their name out of respect. And I don't, I, honestly, I, I don't have an issue with it. And it's actually where we're headed. Um, that's the best way to stabilize them. I've, I was at the MBAA... Um, barrel aging uh, uh, session that took place in Philly, I think. Was when was that? Was that was that earlier this year or, or last year? Yeah, it doesn't matter. Anyway, the the main the main guy, uh, one of the guys there who was from uh, New Holland, um, started off very early on and was one of the first people to do volume barrel age. They ran into some issues with a lactobacillus strain that didn't grow on the plate for nine days. Generally, you'll see growth on the plate within like four or five days. And this stuff costs them about 400 barrels of beer. Not wood, liquid barrels. Um, so he drove, a, drove across a very good point. 
that even though you might think you know what's going on and you're controlling these things, unless you have a lab, you have no idea what you're doing. You're just, you're just throwing caution to the wind. And uh, our, our lab consists of maybe like two to three people. Um, and it's a program we're, we're working on building. I agree. The same same sort of vein of that. Our program. We have one employee right now that's uh, that's working on that, but just started in January. So we hope we hope to get two or three employees here, in, uh, you know, as soon as possible. It's hard to build a lab program because the, I think the the most qualified people are people that are going to come from the macros, um, and um, uh, younger breweries don't might not have the budget to be able to pay them the salary they deserve, so they might not be attractive to them. Um, but lab is super important. I cannot stress that enough. Uh, a couple questions. Uh, other than uh, the Well, I think I think maybe the question you're asking is, you know, does if you're checking the barrel, you have time to actually figure it out before you get it into a blending tank and figure out before it goes into package. And that that's the that's the benefit of of doing that. But it's, um, you also have to understand it's not 100 percent. Right. Um, just because you plate a barrel, there's no. It's not 100 percent. It's it's it, the way that the process of actually plating a barrel um, is is could be you know like false positive all day. So, I mean, best way to do it is to pasteurize, in my opinion. Um, to That's 100%, and that's really the only 100% way. Are we uh, yeah, I, wrapping I, it up here? We, we, we've got folks are heading out from the other room now. Uh, I think these guys will be available to take some more questions uh, afterwards. Uh, you know, I was going to say that the barrel aging programs are – very much more the art side of the art and science of brewing. But obviously the comments in the last few minutes indicate that there's a lot of the science that goes into that too. And I suspect that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to hear their comments because a very big thing in our whole realm quality. right now is quality. And, you know, I have to say that I suspect these guys are with me when we say that sometimes the proudest moments that we have are the moments when we say, that beer isn't good enough, and we pour it down the drain. Um, because that says this isn't up to the standards that we have. So even with the crazy stuff that goes on with barrel-aged beers, the really fantastic things you guys have done to provide us with some wonderful beers tonight, quality is still paramount. And uh, really glad to see that you guys have that commitment to it. And uh, glad you guys got to a, a chance to enjoy all of that tonight. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you guys much. for coming Thanks, out. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2014, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2014, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. 
Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.